This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Go ahead and be opening your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 3. And uh, while you're trying to find that, let me just also make a plug. I, I'm just so excited about our life groups. And uh, this past week, the parking lot was full. And it was dark and it was cold, and uh, foyer was full, we had classes that were full. It's just amazing what God is doing on Wednesday night. So don't lose out. Don't lose out, and if you haven't had the courage to come, get plugged in. This is an amazing time with your brothers and sisters in Christ where we can study the Word. John chapter 3, there are several professions that, at least from my perspective, don't get enough credit. And... And and I know that we probably think that our profession is underappreciated, and and, and it may be, but one that definitely would make the list of unsung heroes would be the men and women who are paramedics or EMTs, emergency medical technicians. They're continually thrown into situations where sometimes they only have seconds or sometimes almost split seconds to make life and death decisions. And what's amazing about them is that they never try to assess the fault or the guilt of the person who's been injured. They don't say, well, you should have used your head. I mean, don't you know that to put a ladder on top of a table is not very smart? By the way, how many of you have done that before? Just be honest. Uh, I I see a few hands going up like this. Um, or, Or don't you know that when you get mad and punch a concrete wall... Of course you'll break your hand, you idiot. They don't say, well, don't you know that as a 50-plus-year-old, when you try to ride a hoverboard, bad things will happen? You moron. What's wrong with you? You deserve to be hurt. Now, they may think that, but they don't stand around shaming you. They don't guilt you. They just go to work. And try to save the day. Now hold that thought for a few moments. Because that concept will tie in. With our lesson at the the very end of our time together. Just a quick uh, review. We're in a series entitled Rediscovering Jesus. Last week we talked about Jesus and his disciples walking through a wheat field. And as they were walking along. Remember the the disciples were just kind of casually. They were a little bit hungry. And so they casually just broke off heads of grain. Popped them into their mouth. But it was the Sabbath. And the Pharisees. And and the Pharisees always had their posse. That always followed Jesus around. To try to catch him doing something wrong. They said "Uh we got you. We, We caught you. Doing a no-no on the Sabbath. Well, well finally, and they, they went back and forth. I said last week it was kind of like a spitting match. It's back and forth, back and forth. And, and finally, Jesus leaned in and said, Hey, hey, wait a minute. You're concerned about Sabbath rules. You're concerned about traditions. You're even concerned about the temple. But he said, listen, one greater than the temple is here. And they were like, no way, Jose. The, the temple was massive. It, massive. It was magnificent. No way could anyone or anything surpass the temple. And, well, Jesus further rattled their cages when he said, well, it won't be long until the temple would be destroyed. And, and remember those huge stones that were uh, 11 by 16 by 44 feet. 
they weighed up to 500 tons. The, the Greeks said that they would be not just fall down, but they would be thrown down as thrown down into the Kidron Valley. And they wouldn't understand it at the time, but, but when it happened, and it did happen, it happened 40 years later. And when it did happen, that signified the, the end of ancient Judaism. And, and even though rabbinic Judaism would be born, and you see that around the Wailing Wall, around the Western Wall, but ancient Sinai Judaism would die because without a temple, without an altar, without sacrifices, you couldn't have ancient Judaism. And we wrapped up our thoughts last week by, by talking about the implications of all of that. And the implications are huge. Up to that moment, sacred had always been the temple. Sacred had been the Holy of Holies. Sacred had been a, a consecrated robe that a priest wore. But now Jesus was announcing to the world that sacred would be commuted. And, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 6 verse 19 helped us to understand what would become sacred. And he said that our bodies would now become temples of the Holy Spirit. And that was a game changer. That this very same Holy Spirit that inhabited the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem would now inhabit the hearts of men and women who had fully yielded themselves to God. Which means now the temple would no longer be sacred. That's why this building here, it's just a building, it's not sacred. That's why this right here is not sacred. Preachers used to talk about standing behind the sacred desk to preach God's word. There are no sacred desks. There's no sacred geography. We talk about going to the holy land. Well, the land is not holy. The sacred has now been transferred, has been commuted to those who allow Jesus to inhabit, inhabit them. So, just as the temple was so amazing and magnificent, now our temples... Our bodies are to be so filled with the presence of Jesus to where people are attracted to Christ. Wow. Enough of a review. Let's get into our lesson. Most people during Jesus' day assumed that he would eventually march into Jerusalem. Probably around Passover time and literally, and not literally, but maybe in a sense he would just kind of take off his rabbinic robe and and there he'd have on a t-shirt that would have an M, standing for Messiah. And he would reestablish the nation of Israel as a kingdom and Rome would be thrown out. That's what most people thought. But, but there were a few discerning people that, that I believe since Jesus was up to something else. Because even though he won the crowd, he refused the crown. And that piqued the curiosity of a man named Nicodemus. Let's read about him. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, some of you would know that the Jewish ruling council was also called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was like parliament and the Supreme Court rolled into one. Nicodemus had probably started at the lowest rung of the ladder in terms of status, but, but whether he was, uh, you know, just maybe politically astute Maybe he had connections, we don't know, but he had worked his way into this very elite group that served the entire nation of Israel. Now, something that we tend to read past without even thinking about is that as John details this incident, he specifically gives us the man's name. It's not like he said, well, 
you know, once upon a time, there was a man that was part of the Sanhedrin. No, he was saying, okay, you can fact check me on this. This is verifiable. Look this up in the records of the Sanhedrin. You will find the name of Nicodemus. Well, in verse 2, John gives us another interesting little detail. He came to Jesus at night. Now, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Well, the most common theory that you've heard is that Nicodemus didn't want anyone to see him with Jesus. And, and that's probably true. But other scholars suggest that Nicodemus paid a night visit to Jesus because maybe Nicodemus was busy during the day or Jesus was busy during the day. Now, I'll just admit I've had it in my mind since childhood that Jesus always had time for anybody that wanted to talk to him. And Jesus was full of compassion. Um, and, and, and I'm sure he was willing, but, but, but think about really the reality of it. Jesus was with thousands and thousands of people every day. And so probably each day dozens, if not hundreds, of people, you know, they, they had diseases or needs or they were representing family members that couldn't be there. And, and, and so they wanted one-on-one time with Jesus. And so it was probably impossible for Jesus to give individualized attention to everyone that wanted a piece of him. So we, we don't know why he came at night, whether it's secrecy, whether it's schedules. But the Bible tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, I happen to think that since he was a leader, he probably, he probably was organized and had a list of questions to ask. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Um, He came to Jesus at night, said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, this statement from Nicodemus was a very extraordinary thing for him to say. It was like, Jesus, I'll be honest with you. We don't understand you. We can't quite figure you out. Again, you've won the crowd. But you've refused the crown. I, I mean, you don't leverage your power nor authority. But, but there's one thing, Jesus, that we cannot deny, and, and that's that you've come from God. You know, Nicodemus seemed to understand that the miracles were just the preamble. In fact, in some of the translations, instead of miracles, it says the signs. They were just the preamble. They were the setup. Because when Jesus healed people, he wasn't just trying to alleviate their suffering, even though Jesus is moved by our suffering. Amen? And when Jesus fed people, he wasn't just trying to fill their empty stomachs, even though he deeply cares about hunger. But all the miracles that Jesus was performing, it was not just like he was doing random stuff. Well, I think here's someone, I think I'll just do this. No. And, And I believe that Nicodemus, even though he didn't have a full understanding of all of this, Yet he had a sense that Jesus had truly come from God and there was a divine plan to everything he was doing. Well, after his initial statement to Jesus in my mind, I, I, I kind of imagine Nicodemus takes a deep breath before starting down his list of questions. But before he could get to that first question, Jesus does that, that Jesus thing where he answers the question before the question is asked. It's almost like Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder, and, and, and how many of you remember in the King James Version, it says, verily, verily, anybody? 
Anybody use that in your everyday talk? Verily, verily. Since we're in the NIV, let's read it from there in John chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And I wonder if Nicodemus, when he heard that, if he didn't think, Jesus, there you go again. I've been watching you for several days and and you seem to know what people are going to ask before they ask it and you jump in and answer it. But it, it was almost like Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. And I know you're a busy man and I know you don't want to be seen with me anyway. So let's just cut to the chase. Go to the heart of the matter. So Nicodemus, to answer the question that you wanted to ask me, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, obviously Nicodemus is confused and, and he thinks... What do you mean, Jesus, that I can't see the kingdom of God? I mean, did you forget I'm Jewish? You know, for Jewish people in the first century, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel were synonymous. So, Jesus, what do you mean? I'm a law-abiding Jew and I'm in the kingdom. Well, Jesus basically says, Nicodemus, you may be in the kingdom of Israel, but you're not in the kingdom of God. To get into the kingdom of God, there's a second requirement. You must be born again. Now at this point, and again, I, I like to read between the lines and I generally tell you when I'm doing this, but I, I think at this point Nicodemus does this little thing that we do sometimes when we get frustrated. You know, we let out our breath with some emphasis. So I, I think Nicodemus goes, And then maybe he points to himself and says, in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? And, and Scripture doesn't say this, but I wonder if about then Nicodemus wants to say, Jesus, why are we talking about this? This may be my only chance to talk to you alone. I've prepared a list of questions. I've got friends and family that are eager for me to report back to them with some answers. But Jesus keeps going in verse 5. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. And Nicodemus, of course, understands that. Jewish people have Jewish people. Romans have Romans. Greeks have Greeks. And flesh gives birth to flesh. But Jesus keeps on going. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. And, and then I think Jesus chuckles and says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Well, before Nicodemus can say anything, he's trying to process all of this. Jesus is off on another illustration. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And, and, and here in this verse, it's interesting, there's a little word play. The, the, the word translated wind and spirit, it's the same Greek word. And Jesus says, you see the effects of wind. But you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. And what he's getting at is, Nicodemus, while you think that God is locked into an exclusive arrangement with the Jewish people, know that God is spirit. He's like the wind. You can't put him in a box. You can't understand God's ways. They're higher than our ways. Well, Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can this be? And Jesus just kind of leans in and maybe he says, come closer, Nicodemus. 
you're Israel's teacher? You don't understand these things? I mean, Nicodemus, you're a religious leader, one of the top dogs. You, if anybody, ought to understand this. Well, the conversation goes on, and finally Jesus gets to something that's common ground between he and Nicodemus, and he says in verse 14, just as Moses. And, and Nicodemus is probably like, finally we get to a topic I understand. I know Moses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And, and Nicodemus knows this story. He says, I taught this story. The nation was going from Egypt to the promised land. They were complaining as usual. And so God sent a bunch of poisonous snakes. And they were biting people and people were dying. And, and you can read this in Numbers chapter 21. But, but God instructed Moses to make a bronze snake, remember? And they put it up on a pole. And when those people who had been bitten by the snakes looked at that bronze snake... They were healed. And so Nicodemus is probably like, I know that story. But what does that have to do with anything? Continues, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And, and, and maybe Nicodemus says, wait a minute. <laughs> Did I hear you right? Did, did you just say something about the Son of Man? The Son of Man is code for Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. But, but, but that doesn't make sense, Jesus. If, I mean, if you put a man on a pole or, or a tree or a Roman cross, that's a sign that the person is cursed by God. So, so Jesus, let me get this straight. Are you telling me? That the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be hung on a tree or a pole or a cross and, and be cursed by God? Well, Jesus continues on and gives the reason the Son of Man must be lifted up in verse 15. That everyone, that probably didn't set too well with Nicodemus. Everyone, not just the Jewish race. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And Nicodemus is thinking, I, I, Jesus, I already know how you get eternal life. You as a Jew love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That's how you get eternal life. I've got eternal life. But, but Jesus, you're saying something different. And, and let me see if I'm getting this right. You're saying that Messiah is going to be put up on this pole? Cursed by God? And that's how people will... Receive eternal life. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button on Nicodemus and, and Jesus. And we're going to come back here in a minute. I, I really need you to track with me, okay? This is something interesting. Every once in a while, the gospel writers will pause the story they're telling and, and sort of pull out of it, make some personal comments, and then jump back into the story. You know, you know we do this all the time. We're, we're telling a story and then, um, you know, we're giving the details and then maybe we'll, we'll pull out and make a personal comment or two and then we'll get back into it. And let me just give you an example here because this is kind of what John is doing. Let's just say we're telling the story of, uh, who, who can I use as an example? Let me just say Val. Uh, let's say that Val is driving back from Nevada and, you know, telling the story. She heard this knocking in the engine and the car starts to overheat and, and then in the middle of, the, of telling the story, we pull out of the story and say, and she would later discover that her engine was out of oil. 
And then we go right back into the story. Say she heard the knocking, car overheated, engine froze up, and whatever else takes place when you don't have enough oil in the engine. So, so that's kind of what, what John is doing. Another example, let's say we're telling uh, that so-and-so saw this big buck coming their way and they wondered why it wasn't moving very fast. And, and so we pull out of the story and, and say, and they would soon discover that it had already been shot in the shoulder, go back into the story and say, so the deer was getting closer and took aim, aim was true, blah, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. Well, in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, John, who is documenting this for us because he was an eyewitness, he does the very same thing. He's telling about Nicodemus and Jesus, and and he's actually quoting Jesus' words, but then all of a sudden, he pulls out of the story. Now, there may be a few of your Bibles, if you've got the red letter edition, that is going to show that the next couple of verses are, are in red, but scholars believe that it wasn't said by Jesus, and doesn't matter because it's all inspired. But it was almost like John pulls out, feels like he has to clarify something on, in his own words because he knows the end of the story. He was an eyewitness to everything. But here is the cool thing. <laughs> this is so cool. As John broke away from the story about Nicodemus, little did he know that he would dictate. And I say dictate because at that time, probably he didn't write with his own handwriting. He probably dictated this to a scribe. That's what they did a lot in those times. But little did he know that as he pulled out of the story of Nicodemus and Jesus, that he would dictate 26 words, at least in the NIV, that would reverberate around the world generation after generation after generation after generation. These 26 words would survive the Roman Empire. They would survive the persecution of the church. They would survive the dark ages. They would survive communism and socialism. They would survive liberalism and legalism. They would survive the many attempts to completely destroy or undermine the word of God. And so John pulls out of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus And he says these 26 words that I think you'll recognize. John says, for God so loved the world, not just the Jews, but the entire world, that he gave his one and only son. And then it's almost as if John struggles a bit to try to figure out how to say this. In the Greek, they use a clause that's kind of like a connector word and He says that he gave his one and only son that or in order that. And then John does something extraordinary. In fact, in all of Greek literature, no one took the Greek word believe and connected it to this preposition. It's like John is saying, okay, I've got to get this right. It's not whoever believes that. This isn't about believing facts. It's whoever believes in or who trusts in. And so possibly as John is dictating this to the scribe, the scribe says, no, John, you can't say it that way. That's not good grammar. Uh, because you don't see this in, in the construction anywhere else. But, but, but it's almost like John says, I don't care. I want you to say it this way because it gets across what needs to be said. It says, whoever believes in him as trusts in him will not perish or literally will not be lost to God, but will have eternal life. 
And again, at that moment, John had no idea that he was writing 26 words that would be repeated millions and millions of times across the world in every continent, in every nation, in football stadiums today, on radio, on television, on the Internet. John would dictate this to a scribe, and he doesn't want it in Aramaic. He doesn't want it in Hebrew. He wants it in Greek because Greek was the language of the empire, not just the language of Palestine. This was a message for the entire world. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Well, then it's almost as if John says, okay, one more thing, and and then we'll we'll get back to the story with Nicodemus and Jesus. I got to say this, because this is what Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God did not send his son into the world to line up all the sinners and tell them about all of their sin. And this connects us back to our opening statement. Jesus did not come to this world full of messed up people that had brought misery upon ourselves. He did not come and lecture us on our guilt and how it was our fault and we deserved all the bad things that come to us. He didn't do that, thank God. Rather, Jesus showed up like an EMT. And he just went to work to save us. And when he realized that the world needed a blood transfusion, he used his own blood. When he realized that people needed a new heart, he gave them his. When he realized that the world needed a sacrifice for their sins, He gave himself as that sacrifice. Jesus was the divine EMT that went to work to save the world. Okay, back to Nicodemus just for a moment before we wrap things up. Nicodemus left Jesus and went home and and maybe his family and his friends asked, well, how did it go? Did you get your questions answered? And and Nicodemus probably again let his breath out with some frustration. <sighs> maybe he said, I left there more confused than when I went. But, but then maybe he said this. You know, I didn't understand everything he said. But there's something I just can't stop thinking about. Jesus said that Messiah is going to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Which makes me wonder, family, makes me wonder, was he saying the Messiah is going to be crucified? And of course, at that moment, Nicodemus didn't get it. But here's what I truly believe. I believe that Nicodemus eventually did get it. And here's why I say this. After Jesus was arrested... You know, since he was part of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, no doubt he was in the crowd. He probably watched as Jesus was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness 
was nailed to the cross. And he watched Jesus instead of cursing those who had nailed him to the cross. He forgave them. And I believe it began to come together for him. Because after Jesus was dead and his body was still hanging on the cross, there were two men who risked their reputation and even probably risked their lives to ask the Roman authorities if they could give Jesus a proper burial. And here's what John says in John chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and, and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. So Nicodemus and and Joseph took Jesus' body to Joseph's personal tomb. And this was a tomb that was close by. Very importantly, it was a tomb that had never been used. You know, back in those days, they would use a tomb more than once. They would put a body in there. And then after the body had deteriorated in there because they didn't have, uh, they didn't embalm like we do. And they didn't have a casket. They didn't have a vault. And because of the heat, typically the flesh would deteriorate very quickly. And after that had happened, the family would go back and take the bones and they would put them in a container called an ossuary. Then they would take the container to a safe place. But this was a tomb that had never been used. This isn't in scripture, but I kind of wonder if maybe Joseph of Arimathea's wife was like, now honey, wait a minute, where are you taking him? Well, we're going to take him to our tomb. Well, honey... Are you sure we've been saving that for us? You know, when we pass away, and that was actually pretty expensive. But Joseph was like, honey, we need to do this. This man deserves better than just to have his body thrown on a heap outside the city where the dogs will come and eat his flesh. So the Bible says they prepared the body with spices. They placed it in that tomb that had never been used before. They rolled a stone over the front of the tomb to seal it so animals couldn't get in. So Nicodemus, even though he probably didn't totally understand everything about Jesus, yet he knew that he had come from God. There was something wonderfully different about him. And the truth is, you may not understand everything about Jesus I certainly don't I have questions but just as Nicodemus had figured this out Nicodemus knew that Jesus had come from God and let me just say this I believe Jesus has come from God anyone that would willingly die on the cross and then resurrect three days later and then ascend up into the heavens 40 days after that I know Jesus has to be from God. And if there's something about this story that stirs your heart, even if you still have questions, it's okay to have questions. But but if there's something that stirs your heart this morning, I want to invite you to do what Nicodemus did. And I want to invite you to do what Joseph of Arimathea did. And I want to invite you to do what I did. 
and what millions and millions and millions of other people have done. What did they do? They believed and received. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not be lost to God, should not perish, but have eternal life. I've been praying this week. I've been praying that if you've come to this point to where something within you is stirring and you haven't received Jesus, for God so loved you, He sent His Son, Jesus. I've been praying for some of you that you would step across the threshold and say, I'm in. I believe. I trust. I receive. I believe there are some here this morning that need to take advantage of that amazing scripture, John 3.16. Lord Jesus, I pray that today there would be some work done in our hearts. Oh God, thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, thank you for providing a plan of salvation for all of us. Lord, I hesitated to preach a message that was so simple and on this scripture that we've heard all of our lives. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe and receive and trust, they would not be lost to God. They would not perish, but have eternal life. And I pray, God, that today there would be some that would say, I'm in. I'm stepping across the line today. Father, I just pray that you would give us courage to do this. We ask this in your name. Would you please stand today? Now, I have a sense that this is the day for some people to make this move. Would you just bow your heads again here? Nobody looking around. Is there, would you just be flat out honest and say, Pastor, I know I'm not where I should be with God. Would you just pray for me? Would you just thank you? I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Yours. Anybody else pray for me? Anybody else pray for me? You know what? I'm not going to force you. We don't do that at this church. We don't pressure you, but... Maybe you would like to just come and kneel here at the steps. You know, I'm not some priest that you confess your sins to. You just, you just confess your, your sins to Jesus. Is there someone that would like to come and, you know, you're just feeling, you've been feeling that in your heart that, you know, something, this is the time. If you want to just kneel here, there's someone else that, you would like to just come and, and pray. 
Maybe you've just kind of distanced yourself from Jesus. Anybody else? Anyone else? A lot of hands were raised. And again, we're not going to pressure you, but you know, this is part of the family of God where we just support each other. We rejoice in the good times and we just support each other during the bad. Someone else want to come and spend some time praying? Would, would you just, you know, if, if you've just been feeling that within your heart, would you just do it? Just go ahead and come. And I know it's kind of scary to do this on a Sunday morning and people, you think, Satan wants you to think, well, people will think I'm a bad, bad person. No, that's not it at all. It's just that you're a good person. You want to seek God. Is there anybody else you want to come? Those of you that are working with this one that's come, would you just find out what the needs are and just, just lead them leader to the Lord anyone else before we pray are you comfortable with your decision to leave here as you are or or, or maybe you know what unless it's a matter of pride maybe God just wants to humble you and you need to come forward but maybe right back there why don't you just say God man I'm struggling I don't I don't have the courage to go forward, but I want to go ahead and trust in you right now, right where I am. Would you just do that? Lord, thank you again for your sweet spirit that has just settled down upon us. The simple, simple story, simple verse, well-known verse. But thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that that included us, that everyone included us, not just the Jewish people because we would be left out. Lord, for this one that's come forward and for the many that raised their hands that said, I know I'm not where I should be with God. I pray, Lord, that I pray that right now and throughout this week that they would just seek you, that they would trust in you and believe in you and that they would find eternal life. Thank you for the amazing plan of salvation that you've given us that includes all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before you go, before anybody leaves, if you didn't have the courage to come forward, but you want to pray, man, I'd love, I'd love to pray with you or find a staff member or someone else you have confidence in. We would love to pray with you before you leave today. Thank you. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.